tell all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, February 28th, 2022, and this year we're excited to take you on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebrich with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. My name's Guy Ero, and I really, 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 really like fish. Like them all, big and small. Even like fishing for them at the National Mall. The rhythm doesn't really work, but it rhymes, and we got ourselves a DC fish today. This episode is all about snakeheads, and our guest is fisheries biologist John Odenkirk with the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Katrina. Pleasure to be here today, and always happy to talk snakes. I can talk snakes for a long, long time. Awesome. Well, we got a, a good hour, so we're hoping to talk about them for a long time with you. So I'm going to be honest, I think snakeheads are pretty cool looking fish, and I'm guessing you've handled quite a few of them. What we'd like to do for our listeners first is just have our guests describe what they look like. So if you were to have one of these in hand, I know there's maybe a few different species we're going to be talking about today, but what do they look like? How big are they? And do their heads actually resemble that of a snake? Okay, so what do snakeheads look like? They look like a bowfin, but a lot of people don't know what a bowfin looks like. They're cylindrical fish, kind of torpedo shaped. They're long. They're very slimy, which has to do with their ability to withstand being out of the water for extended periods of time. So they're cylindrical, slimy, hard to hold, really hard to hold. You ever try to hold an eel? It's similar to holding yep. it. And a lot of people kill eels thinking they were snakeheads, which is weird because they really don't look very much alike, but to some people, I guess they do. And they get fairly large. We're talking about, because of the body shape, the dimensions, we're talking about a fish that could be like 36 inches long and weigh in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 pounds maximum size. Typically, they're more like six pounds and 24, 26 inches, something like that. But but as you can imagine, a a long, skinny fish, like a gar, kind of that shape, but but more cylindrical, can be really hard to get your hands on. So we recommend bring some Boca grips or or some other method to hold because you don't want to lip them like a bass either. That'd be a bad Hmm. idea. They're hard to hold. And they got some sharp teeth? They do have sharp teeth, yes. You don't see a lot of freshwater fish with teeth like some a lot of saltwater fish have, but the exception might be the Asasids, the Northern Pike and Muskie group. They have some pretty nice sets of teeth. Walleye have pretty good sets of teeth. Yeah. Snakeheads as well. Um, so you definitely don't want to live a snakehead. And they got some really neat looking kind of bigger scales on their head. They do, I mean, they do kind of look like a, a snake in terms of what their face actually looks like. The patterns are very cool, uh, especially on younger fish. A lot of times it seems the, uh, the colors and the patterns are, are much more vibrant and then on females as well, which is it's always kind of confused me because in the like the bird world, the fish world, typically males are going to be a little showier to attract mm-hmm. males. We have seen repeatedly the biggest individuals in a snakehead population are almost always males. They get huge heads like catfish. Yeah. And they get black. They just they lose their patterns. They tend to get kind of skinny. So they go really long, skinny. But when you look at a female. Now, female snakeheads are gorgeous fish. They have an iridescence about them, like a purpley, bluish iridescence, when they're, especially when they're fresh out of the water, when they're younger, even too, and just wonderful patterns. And especially on the head, if you look at the way those bands come across the eyes, they're very small eyes, little pig eyes, uh, but those bands sort of conceal where that eye location is. Because of that pattern, you look at the fish and it does look, a lot of people say, wow, that looks like a snake. I much prefer the... Uh, I think it's Japanese, the Kamaruchi. I think Kamaruchi is a much nicer name. It probably would do better in markets than snakeheads. 
certainly better than in Korea. They call them mudfish. I mean, that doesn't sound overly attractive. I think Camarucci is probably the best. That's funny that they call them mudfish because you brought up the bowfin over here. I've heard some people in the U.S. refer to bowfin as mudfish. So you kind of got these two fish with similar looking bodies, similar sort of lifestyles to them that get the same common name despite not being actually related to one another. Exactly. Yeah. Burbot kind of looks similar too. Are, are there any other fishes people should be aware of that are native to America, North America, and just how to not get those species confused? Well, you know, we've got a, a really nice poster on our website, you know, just dwr.virginia.gov. Once you've seen one, even if it's on a picture, you know, an educational material, it's pretty easy to discount in the field. Oh, you know, this is not that animal. And the only, really, the only time people should have problems if it's a bowfin, that's the only thing that even comes close. And then just look at the anal fin. And all the bowfin is going to have that spot too, typically down near the caudal, the tail fin, like a puppy drum spot. But the, um, the bowfin has a very, very short anal fin, whereas the snakehead's anal fin is very, very long, almost mirrors the dorsal fin. So right away, you can just make that key distinction, you know, bowfin, snakehead, done. Snakeheads, they have an ability to colonize. One of the ways they colonize is to go downriver on freshets. So say the tidal Potomac, where you've got tidal fresh water, the further down you go towards the bay, you know, there's a salt wedge, salt's denser water. And so it's underneath. And so the fresh water rides down. But when you have a hurricane or a tropical storm and you have this tremendous influx of fresh water coming down into an estuary, then the snakeheads will ride that down and get to an area where they probably couldn't have gotten to previously. And, and then once the floodwaters start to recede a little bit, the snakehead realizes that and looks for the nearest tributary where there's some fresh water coming in and works its way up in there and holds again and maybe reproduces or maybe waits for the next freshet to leapfrog down a little bit more. And so because of that, sometimes you find them in areas of salinity. And one of the more common things that we've had recently, people calling and saying, I got a snakehead, was a, a fish called an inshore lizard fish. I've seen those. Yeah, those are cool. But the others for freshwater basically is eels and, and bowfin. And eels have that kind of snake shape, but yeah, very different fish. Yeah, eels are much more snake-like than, than bowfin and, and snakeheads. So we've kind of been shifting back and forth in this description, which I do think is a really good description you gave there. I really loved your enthusiasm, uh, but kind of shifting between snakeheads as a group and then the specific species that you guys got there in Virginia. Now, you mentioned that these fish, they're native to Asia and especially Southeast Asia, but what if you're up in Virginia, what species are you going to find that's been introduced there? So what we're talking about in the United States, including Hawaii, there's only three species that we know of that have naturally self-sustaining populations. Almost all of them, including this huge conglomerate we have in the mid-Atlantic, are northern snakeheads. That's Argus species. South Florida, as you mentioned, you, you were lucky enough to catch one of the bullseyes, a much smaller population down there and not, not abundant at all. And then in uh, Hawaii, they've had for years, over a century, they've had there was a chevron, and originally I think it was misidentified. It's either a blast or a chevron. So there's a Hawaii species, the South Florida species, and then northerns. And, and because the northerns life history attributes and their ability to tolerate cold conditions, they're the only one out of all the more than two dozen cana that could essentially colonize the entire you know lower 48. And then they will, I, I believe, over time. There's not much to stop them. They're very good migrants on their own, and people are illegally moving them. So you combine two things, and, and that's what I tell my, my peers and 
you know, nearby states. You can't say exactly when, but they will be coming. And how did they get here? What we know for sure is that Northern showed up in a, in a stormwater pond in Maryland, in Crofton, a small town, in 2002. There's different ideas about why these fish get released. Some of it's um, medicinal. Supposedly, that the ones in Crofton, an individual had bought these because they have um, reputed therapeutic healing properties and had bought them for his sick family member. And then she got better and he didn't want to kill the fish. So we dumped them into the nearby water pond, which happens all the time with piranhas and pacus and oscars and take your pick. Um, so, you know, it's, we try not to let people do that or recommend they don't do that, but it happens anyway. So anyway, that's, that was one isolated incident that we had in 02 in Crofton. The next year we had a very similar incident in Wheaton, Maryland, in another stormwater pond, Another weird thing where somebody just let a fish or two go for some reason, and then all of a sudden, it seemed they spawned and found each other and, and had a good population there. Well, these were just isolated small stormwater ponds. And, and because of genetics work that we've done, we know that those two isolated populations were not connected to what broke out in the Potomac system in 2004. So this was a completely different genetic makeup. And based on the age structure of the few fish we got in 04, it looked like probably around the year 2000, somebody had released a small group of fish and, you know, a couple of them found each other and then we're off to the races. So now because of that one population that was established initially at the epicenter near Mount Vernon, George Washington's home there, just a mile below D.C., so many areas of the mid-Atlantic now, you know, have large snakehead populations because of the, those individuals moving out, you know, from that early colonization. What part of the Potomac are we talking about? Are we talking about, like, when I think of the Potomac, I'm thinking about, like, Little Falls up in the D.C. area, really fast, really narrow kind of water where you can throw a rock across it if you want to. Or are we talking, like, lower down where it starts to get slower, flatter, wider? Right, yeah. So habitat is the key here. Snakehead habitat, when you look at a continuum of a river system like the Potomac, you know, from brook trout headwaters in the mountains, you know, getting larger and larger. And then the smallmouth sort of habitat with the high gradients, boulders and the rapids. And then you, you hit the fall line uh, and got the sluggish vegetation choked, silty, mucky stuff. Okay, It's the last, last part, the silty, mucky vegetative stuff. That's the snakehead habitat. Okay. They're going to go through all those other habitats. We found them. I'm here at my home now near Sperryville, Virginia in Rappahannock County. And we've got the Hazel River not far from here, which, you know, is a trout stream. And a couple of times in the last few years, people have gotten snakeheads up there. That's just because they, they managed to get all the way up there. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. They're just trying to go. Then they don't do anything. The ones that aren't, they, they vanish because that's not their habitat. They don't want to be in that cold, high gradient water with no vegetation and rocky, gravelly substrate. That's not their primary habitat. So it's, it's sort of like if the habitat's there and they have access to it, yeah, they'll colonize it. As a biologist, like what kinds of questions are you trying to figure out about these fish? We know they're invasive species. They do well, apparently, you're spreading and populating a, a bunch of different habitat types. What questions are you trying to answer and what questions do you still have about these fish? We have learned a lot. Basically, when this thing broke in 04, there was almost no information. There were no peer-reviewed journal articles. There was very limited published information on any aspect. And, and you would think, based on the hysteria that was heaped on this introduction, that there would have been a copious literature suggesting the evilness and, and the destruction that was, was sort of forecasted. And so we set about talking to other 
countries and states trying to figure out, you know, where they were, what had been the net, what was the result. And early on, you know, talking to folks and biologists in Japan or talking to biologists in Hawaii or South Florida, when we could actually speak with somebody who had managed snakeheads for any period of time, we started hearing the same thing. Well, what do you mean? What, there's not a problem here. And we're like, well, wait a minute, I thought they were supposed to destroy everything. And that was based on a comic book strip and a, something that got repeated and then just sort of became gospel. So we started doing a lot of investigations. Of course, the big thing was the tidal Potomac River is not just national, but international largemouth bass fishery, tournament fishery, guides make a living you know, on, the, on this river. It's a fish factory. And largemouth bass is the bread and butter fish for these recreational anglers up and down, you know, miles and miles of the freshwater tidal Potomac system and all the tributaries. It's a network. And so this is a huge controversy. Oh my God, snakeheads are going to destroy this bass fishery. And so that was the first thing we started looking at. What's the snakehead population doing? What's the size structure? What's the age structure? What's the bass population doing in response to that? What we have found out is a lot. We've nailed down the age of growth. We've nailed down a lot about spawning behavior, maximum size, movements. There's still a disconnect in the early life phase. When the young are first hatched, there's sort of a disconnect between what happens and what creates a really good year class from a poor year class. And so we're, we're trying to figure out that now, the early life history aspect of it, the spawning, the periodicity of the spawning. It seems like there's, there's a peak in the spring and a peak in the late summer. We took a group from Discovery Channel out in January a year ago, and they were so desperate to see a snakehead. I told them, I said, we're not going to find any. It's January. These fish are hibernating. They're buried in the mud. They're not active. And they were so insistent that we went out, we had to go out anyway for something else. So we went out in this one creek where we knew we had some good vegetation. Eurasian water milfoil doesn't break down like a lot of the other plants. So we were like, well, if there's any, any snakeheads, it's going to be in this one creek where we still have a lot of milfoil. We went in this creek. The water temperature was like three degrees above freezing. And we started rolling snakeheads. And they weren't coming out of the mud either. We've pulled them out of the mud before. You know, they just caked mud in their gills and, you know, the slime is encrusted and it's kind of wild, but these fish were not coming out of the mud and we're, we're scratching our heads. We're like, what are these fish doing in late January in the water this cold? I mean, that's just an example. We have figured a lot, but we're still, we're still learning and we're probably still will be learning another decade. What are you finding in like diet studies? I mean, what are these fish eating typically? That's a good question, an important question, and one that we have nailed down. The snakehead is the epitome of an opportunist. It will eat, when it's hungry, it will eat whatever is in front of its face. We found well over 20 different species of fish in snakehead guts, as well as reptiles, amphibians, bugs. And so what it eats is largely a collection of what's in its habitat. And what is, what is its habitat? Very shallow, vegetated water. What type of fish are in those systems? Well, if you're in the tidal Potomac, it's banded killifish. It's a little, little fungulus minnow. They call them bull minnows and use them for flounder fishing because they stay alive really well. If you're looking in reservoirs where we have a warm water typical uh, fish community, bluegill, the centrarchids, that's a sunfish family. Bluegill, red ear sunfish, pumpkin seed sunfish, all those lipomus group sunfish are sort of round, you know, and for snakeheads, you're looking at a fish that's anywhere from two to three or four or five inches big, and they're sucking those bluegill or pumpkin seeds down. So whatever the most abundant fish is, wherever it is, is what it's going to be eating. They're classified as a vertical thrust predator. So if you think about a fish, it's kind of camouflaged, and then it just waits for something to swim right in front of its yap, and then it just sucks it in. Literally, snakeheads, I don't know why they have teeth. 
because I have removed thousands of food items from snakehead stomachs and I have yet to see one that was in perforated or in pieces or had marks in it. And they create like a vortex. So it'll come up and, and they have this huge air bladder that runs from right behind its throat all the way to the tail. And it, it literally looks like a Cuban cigar. It's, it's metabolism gets slow. It can go down into the cold bottoms and just wait, you know, buried in the mud or just wait for conditions to improve. And doesn't have to come up and gulp air like it does when it's 90 degrees. They're a really extraordinary fish. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about, we, we kind of glanced over that. I remember back when I was a kid in Utah, kind of YouTube had just sort of come out and watching all these videos about this frankenfish, this species that's kind of the ultimate invasive. What features of its biology and ecology made people worry about it so much that it's going to just take over the world? And then talk about like the bass fishery in the Potomac. What actual effects have the introduction of snakeheads had on those kinds of fisheries? Okay, good. Two questions. I'll try to remember them. <laughs> well, first off, the attributes. Okay, so I just mentioned one attribute that really scared people, obligate air breathing. You can put this fish in a prolapse sack, throw it in the trunk of your car and drive to California. It probably won't be alive when you get there. That freaks people out. The other thing that got totally overblown was their ability to walk. Okay, that was that's one of the things that, that really drove people back crazy. Uh, and we were getting calls at the office in 04, 05, into 06. People didn't want to walk their dogs near a lake because they were because they'd seen the movies and they they were they were certain that the fish was going to come out of the, the lake and walk over and you know eat their dog. I mean, just this happened multiple times. So yeah, the ability to walk, which was not true, the ability to breathe air, which was true, the multiple reproduction. Okay, because typically the predators in that are you know at that trophic level, that niche whether it's a largemouth bass, a bowfin, or a snakehead, most of those fish spawn once a year. You throw snakehead in the mix, multiple spawn, that's another thing that kind of messed with people. Well, because of their obligate air breathers, they don't care about water quality, right? So they can live in the most stagnant, oxygen-devoid environment. And they do. You're not going to find any other fish, if, <laughs> any uh, self-respecting fish is going to be in, you know, 95-degree water in the middle of August, and, you know, it's, it's a foot deep, but you'll find snakeheads there. So those are some of the, the really scary things, I guess. And then it's just the big unknown, I think, was most of it. Because like I say, we didn't have a lot of information. So it was a lot of conjecture and fear and theories about what might or might not happen. So it, it, what we have learned, though, I presented uh, data from ten, more than 10 years, pushing 20 years now, of largemouth bass and northern snakehead population trends in both the tidal Potomac and the tidal Rappahannock systems. And what we were able to see over the time the snakeheads colonized those waters, our bass fisheries actually got better. When it's good for one, it's good for the others. So during this period of time, when we had snakeheads colonizing these tidal rivers, we also had good conditions for everybody, meaning that we didn't have droughts, we didn't have floods, we had good abundance of habitat in terms of aquatic vegetation, whether that was native or non-native, it didn't really matter. Hydrilla, snakeheads love hydrilla, bass love hydrilla. It's not a native plant, but great habitat. And when we go out and we're looking at relative abundance, that is how many fish are there, we use a metric called per hour of electrofishing. So we're out for bass, we're catching maybe around 100 an hour. That's a, that's a high level of fish. That's a lot of abundance of bass. And that's a good abundance. And that's what people are accustomed to in, in the Potomac River. When we're talking about snakeheads now, at the height of this thing, in most of these creeks, we weren't even at 10 an hour. And now we're back in the single digits. And most of these creeks were like at two, three an hour. That's not even on the radar. It doesn't even show up. Part of its exploitation. That's a huge part of it. Commercial and recreational. These fish were being hammered 
archery, hook and line. They're being sold for market, people making money on selling these fish and people love eating. Exploitation has no doubt helped to flatten that curve. I think we passed the heyday of snakeheads here. And, and I've had anglers asking, begging to, to conserve them. You know, we need a bag limit on them. You need to put a size limit on them. You need to stop these people who are bow fishing for them. And right now it's wide open season. They can go out and kill as many as they want. No size, no limit, anything. And at some point that'll be revisited. Probably not anytime real soon because there's still a lot of fear about them getting into other systems and doing other things where maybe the productivity is not as high. Maybe there's an endangered species um, so there's there's still legitimate concerns about other systems, but I think what we've seen now in the systems where they are, I'm not overly concerned. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, invasive species, they each have kind of their own story and it can take a long time to figure out what that impact is. We don't want to be, you know, having fish that are from elsewhere replacing our native fish, but that is an interesting kind of facet of this story that there is information being found out over time. So you did mention that, you know, there's lots of people out there who they just want to catch fish that are around, fish that will fight hard, fish that will taste good, and they don't care so much whether it's native or not. And I thought it was really interesting going out there. I kind of had this frame of mind that, okay, people are probably not going to like the snakeheads. But then I was talking to like the guy who got me on my first couple and stuff and seeing all these Facebook communities that have come up, like the snakehead outlaws and all these guys has really kind of become a sport fishery that people are really feeling like they have all this camaraderie around going and fishing for snakeheads. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and then how that fits in with your role as a state biologist. Yeah, it's, it, honestly, it's been a little difficult for me because I see exactly what you're describing. In fact, most people see exactly what you're describing. There is a tremendous excitement that has grown up around this fishery. It, it went from being sort of a cult classic to being just like the hottest thing in, in fishing. In uh, kayak angling, is because kayaks, you know, true snakehead aficionado, hook and line, person is really only going to be able to really get into good snakehead fishing in a kayak. And that's simply because of the habitat. You know, I mentioned a foot of water. You can't get a bass boat, you know, back into uh, most of the areas where the, the numbers there are left because they have been hammered. And so that opens up, you know, sort of the refuge, if you will, for the kayak anglers, canoe maybe, but most of the serious snakehead anglers are, are going by kayak. I mean, you can't draw up a more desirable sport and food fish. I mean, it's so fun. They just check all the boxes. And so you don't want to promote that. I've, I've been accused of promoting them or the fishery or whatever too much. And I, it's not my intention or I don't really want to promote that. I mean, everybody's doing a good enough job on their own. Uh, but at the same time, I, I'm not going to lie about it. You know, that, so if somebody asks me, well, are they good to eat? Yes, they're really good to eat. I've eaten hundreds of them. My wife even, ate some. She, could, she couldn't get past the name for a while. But then after all, our friends kept saying, telling her how good it was. She's, now she's all in. I was so impressed by how long those fillets were, too. I was expecting the guts to go much further back. I mean, you do have that long get, uh, swim bladder that you're talking about, but you, there's a that's like all meat in there. It was close to $20 a pound fillet. And from what I understand, I haven't talked to any of the commercial wholesalers recently, but for a long time, they just couldn't keep up. They weren't getting enough product to, to meet demand, which is one of the reasons the price was so high. The point I keep making my, my boss is that you know most agencies are, are invested in this R3 thing now. Recruit, retention, reactivation. Right. I mean, this, this fish is a poster child for R3. People are so excited. We have created so many new anglers. People will never fish, want to go out and catch snakeheads. And it's 
sort of like, man, we should be taking advantage of this. You know, this is this is really fueling a fishing resurgence. So it's difficult from a biologist's perspective, I guess, to try to hit your wagon to that and ride it, you know, for as much as you can without overly promoting it, um, which is sort of the spot we find ourselves now. You know, people who are, if they, they want to go out and fish for them, you know, a kayak's a good way to do it. But what, what kind of techniques are people like throwing lures or people doing it on the fly, bait fishing? What are people using to try and catch these? Yeah. So if you ever see a picture of me with a really nice snakehead and I'm holding a fly rod <laughs> in my hand, that was staged. Uh, I didn't make <laughs> it on, on that fly rod and fly. I have talked to people that have caught them on flies. Now, it's not easy uh, because most of the times, it's like if you see that fish, it's hard to sight fish for them because they are spooky. The exception to that may be when they're guarding. They're much more aggressive when they're guarding their young, which they, you know, they do. That's another attribute that makes them much more vulnerable during that typically late June into early July, mid-July window when they're actively guarding fingerling. What I tell people is just fish like you're bass fishing, except fish shallower, because if you're not in the weeds, you're probably not going to catch snakeheads. They're going to be in vegetation. So, you know, I like a Senko, like a five-inch Senko with no weight on it, just you know, like a four-aught hook or something, and just, just dig it around in there, rig weedless. When it gets hot, I love a topwater frog. Frogs are one of the most common and, and beloved baits for snakeheads. We've only seen a couple frogs in, in food, you know, as dietary items in their stomachs. But apparently they do like frogs, and that, that's a good bait. Chatter baits early in the season, before the, the grass gets too thick, a lot of people like to throw a white chatter bait. Um, seems to be really effective on snakes. Do you got to use a wire leader, or are people getting away with just heavier, like six, eight pound tests, maybe 10 pound? Yeah, I, I use braid. I mean, I just tie my braid straight to the, the lure and use like, you know, 20 pound braid. Um, I've been cut off by a snake. I know other people have, but, but I have not been cut off. So you mentioned they can kind of survive that car ride home if you're going to cook them. What's your kind of preparation process? How do you cook them? Do you have a favorite recipe? I absolutely do have a favorite recipe. So first, let me say about, you know, when you catch them. So what we do when we're, when we're surveying is we just put the fish in an ice bath. Mm-hmm. And essentially they drown under the weight of the fish on top of them. They can't get gulp. And, and it, within an hour or two, they usually succumb in, in an ice bath with a lot of fish in that huge, one of those huge charter boat coolers. Most anglers can't do that because they technically be possessing a live snakehead. So the act of catching the fish and releasing it is not possession. So if you want to catch and release a snakehead, that's fine. Once you take possession of that fish, which means you put it on a stringer, put it in a cooler, a live well, whatever, it has to be dead. And they're not easy to kill. The problem, especially if you got a nice bass boat with carpet on it, you know, the last thing you want to do is just start slime it. I, t- I I was hitting mine in the head with a hammer, and they'd start kicking. You know, I guess I was illegal because I had them on a stringer, but they'd start kicking again, and I I felt bad because you know I'm not out here to harm animals, but I tried my darndest to to kill them, but they wouldn't die. They they are they are hard to kill. There's no question. There I've called them badasses before, and they they pretty much are badasses. Um, <laughs> So anyway, yeah, just however you can, you know, try to kill them, possess them. I, I don't know that anybody's ever been written up for taking one home to eat that wasn't dead. At some point, it might happen. So just be aware that that is the law everywhere, I think, not just Virginia. So once, you, once they're dead and you fillet them, and uh, cook them. So there's not a bad way to cook a snakehead. Do cook it, though. Um, no ceviche. Well, ceviche, I guess, would be okay. No sushi because uh, they do have a lot of worms or can have a lot of worms. So I love them fried, grilled baked, um, just as simple as putting a little olive oil on them and some obey. I mean, just, you can't do anything wrong, but my favorite way, my wife's favorite way is to steam them, um, with a little bit of sesame oil, scallions, 
and finely shaved ginger on top and some chili flakes uh, and then serve those over rice. And that is, that's a, like a true Thai dish and, and it's very, very good uh, recipes with uh, a guy on meat eater, Kevin, the chef there. We had very similar, he had coconut, uh, some coconut milk in that, but it was a very similar recipe and it, it's quite tasty. Ah, right on. That sounds awesome. What, what kind of fillet can people expect? Like, like what, what other fish might this be similar to? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, it, it's really like no other freshwater fish. It, it's such a thick, firm, chewy kind of meat. And the other thing about it is almost no oil. In a cold part of my refrigerator, I've kept snakehead fillets fresh for two weeks and they're fine. You know, you put red drum or, or any, you know, pick some other fish, try to save that for four or five days. And it, and it turns into sort of some, you know, nasty stuff. But, but, but because of the low oil content and, and the way that the, fl- the flesh is just amazing, it's, it's sort of like a swordfish steak, but without the oil, um, the swordfish steak can have. Um, I've, I've equated it, the consistency and the, and the texture to a pork chop almost on the grill. Uh, if you dry rub it and grill it, you know, almost kind of like a pork chop consistency. From a culinary perspective, you know, it's definitely better than, to me, than crappie or walleye. You know, crappies. Oh, and they're pretty good. Those are, yeah, those are high standards, high benchmarks in other yeah. parts of the country. <laughs> But I don't know. It, 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 I don't think there's a better fresh water eating fish. It's ah, one of my favorites that I've had. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the public about this fish in the context of this fish itself and also just invasive species in general? Like any final messages for folks? Well, you know, when we're talking about invasive species, well, the point I try to make when I talk to people is, is you can't paint all invasives with one brush. All, all invasives aren't the same. And so we have to look at each one individually and determine the best way to manage. And, and part of the reason I say that is because I've seen what I call invasive fatigue among some of our constituent groups. Now we're dealing with a fish called Alabama bass and, and we're telling them it's bad. And I don't think they're going to believe us as much because we haven't seen the disaster that was forecasted for the snakehead. And, and where we have verifiable issues of, of ecological harm, such as Alabama bass, that, that, that's concrete. That, that's been proven. That's in, that's in the, the literature. And so hopefully we won't have that for snakeheads. Maybe we will. But moving forward, I think we, we'll just continue to learn and uh, we'll adjust if necessary. But we'll, we have to manage it as as we can, you know, one one species at a time, one basin at a time as, as, it, as it comes. Yeah, it sounds like a pretty nuanced fish. And I guess just tips for folks. I mean, just the common pieces of advice, you know, if you have a, a pet fish, don't release it. Yeah, moving fish from water to water, bad. Um, but yeah, I, I appreciate that nuanced kind of view of this fish that you've given us. That's pretty cool. This was fascinating, John. Thanks a lot for joining us today. And yeah, we hope everyone gets out there, enjoys all the fish, learn about the snakehead. And yeah, very cool. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick and my co-host is Guy Eero. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore Lambert. Production management by Gabriella Montaquin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>